Welcome to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, Inside Stories of Noteworthy Cornellians. I am Sydney Mann, class of 2018, and I am your host for today's episode with Dr. Glenn Altschuler. Dr. Glenn Altschuler received his PhD in American History from Cornell in 1976 and has been an administrator and teacher at the university since 1981. He has written over 11 books and 1,500 articles. So today we will be talking about his time at Cornell um, as a PhD student and professor. Well, hi, uh, Dr. Altschuler. I haven't seen you in a very long time. It's so great to see you. Have you been? Great to see you too. <laughs> I've been hanging in there with COVID and uh, yeah. spending most of my time in my house. Yeah, I feel like it's been a long two years, but it feels so short since I've seen you from the last time I was at Cornell. So um, I'm very happy to be interviewing you today. So you have a variety of experience and accolades, and it's absolutely incredible. I understand you started um, your PhD at Cornell in 1976. Is that correct? No, I started it in 1971. 1971. And I completed it in 1976. Got it. So what brought you to pursue a PhD in American Studies at Cornell? I was an undergraduate at Brooklyn College. I had one of those experiences that uh, an individual never forgets. Mm -hmm. I had a fabulous professor named Abraham Eisenstadt, and he invited his senior seminar, actually I was a junior in his senior seminar, to his house in Park Slope, Brooklyn for dinner. The uh, walls were all lined with books. Uh, he was the intellectual's intellectual and a great teacher. And I decided I want to be just like him. I want to do what he does. And he guided me through the process of uh, applying to graduate school. And he said to me, I'll never forget it, don't be the Jewish boy who never went north of 125th Street. I suggest that you apply to Cornell University. And he had taught two members of the history department at Cornell, Joel Silby and Richard Polenberg. And so in addition to his uh, formal recommendation, he contacted them. I was accepted uh, uh, to Cornell. I came in the, in the summer and fall of uh, 1971. And in essence, I've been in Ithaca ever since. That's incredible. It's always amazing when you meet somebody who becomes a mentor to you. It sounds like he really helped um, guide what you wanted to do in your future endeavors. He became like a second father to me. Mm. And uh, uh, we kept in very close contact. And in fact, uh, when he died, I gave the eulogy for him. Mm. It's really sweet. And I loved um, the Jewish boy never going <laughs> up on 125th Street. That's very, very funny. It, it reminds me of my grandfather when he went to Cornell actually around the same time as you did. Um, thank you for sharing that with me. Um, 
So you mentioned that he really opened your eyes to this academic world, and then you went to pursue your PhD, and this was during the 70s. So I'm curious, what were your influences at the time? Because you were, um, you are very into pop culture as a, a site of contested terrain. So I'm curious how your experiences at Cornell on the ground uh, during the 70s kind of informed your education. Well, my training was pretty traditional. It uh, barely touched uh, a popular culture. Mm. It was my uh, PhD supervisor was a Pulitzer Prize winning uh, historian named Michael Kamen. But my training graduate students, if they're really um, good graduate students are largely self-taught. They, uh, uh, they just read and read and read and write. And I had an experience that um, were made a vow in the summer of 1971 that I've kept ever since. Most of my fellow graduate students were from Ivy League institutions. I felt that I was not as well prepared for graduate school as they were. So I made a vow in August of 1971, 51 years ago, that I would not go to bed in any day until and unless I had read 100 pages of something that day. And I have kept that vow ever since. And in doing so, my interests were pretty uh, wide ranging. Uh, and so believe me, I forgot 98% uh, uh, of what I read, but I didn't forget everything. Uh, and it took me into American literature, American popular culture, uh, a biography, American politics, in ways that uh, stayed with me for uh, the rest of my career. Uh, and uh, Michael Kamen was um, a very rigorous uh, PhD supervisor, and he gave all of his graduate students a list of oh, probably about 175 books for us to read before we took what's called the admissions to candidacy exam, which means you've completed all your coursework and are ready to begin your PhD. So that was my training. It was very good training. Yeah, especially the self-taught reading and learning with not so much uh, being taught, the very technology. And you know, Sydney, it's... Um, stayed with me so much ever since. I've not missed a day in yeah. 51 years. But what it's meant on the more current side is that uh, uh, for many years, I've been a book reviewer yes. in uh, uh, outlets, uh, uh, newspapers, uh, websites, uh, uh, platforms within the United States and outside of the United States. And for years, I agree to review any book I'm asked to review. And over time, uh, you know more, you know how to do it. 
and you get some confidence in how to read and critique a book. Especially as you said, um, having to kind of be in that position of self-teaching and with the passion you have for reading and writing and then coming into Cornell feeling um, not as prepared, you said, just based off of kind of those differences. Right. So, yeah, yeah. And I see all the books on your shelves and I know in your old office at Cornell, your, um, your room was lined with books. So I'm curious, since you've been reviewing so many books and I know you've written over, and I'm sure it's more than this, 1500 scholarly essays. I know you write for The Hill, you've been featured on the New York Times and you have over 11 books. So in those readings, um, I guess, what what's on your shelf? Like what was your favorite thing to read? Um, or a book, I guess, that really stood out to you during those readings? Well, I, I, I wouldn't say there's one single book, but uh, I read pretty widely in nonfiction and fiction. Uh, I read in psychology, so I write for, uh, I have my own platform on psychology today. Uh, I read a lot of uh, uh, American politics because I, of course, read in American popular culture. And recently, because I review regularly for the Jerusalem Post, uh, I've done a lot of reading in um, Jewish history, uh, American Jewish history, Jewish history generally. Uh, in fact, a few years ago, I read a phenomenal book by David Nirenberg uh, called Anti-Judaism. Uh, I, uh, I read um, a wonderful uh, novel that is set hundreds of years ago uh, that uh, uh, deals with a woman uh, in the, a time in which women were not uh, allowed uh, to do many of the things that uh, women would do. I've read uh, Garcia Marquez, Love in the Time of the Cholera, one of my favorite um, novels. Uh, and often, I will say, which is wonderful, I read a book and I say, I never could have written this book. This book is so good. Uh, I, I just could not have written the book. And what I'll also say is that I've never read a book. This is also true of going to the theater, which I do frequently. I've never read a book, uh, even bad books, where I didn't learn something from it. Uh, and in that sense, reading is thrilling. It just uh, keeps you alive and, and makes you feel that you're constantly adding to your store of knowledge and insights. Yeah, that aspect of growth, and you, you even mentioned with your old advisor, just opening your eyes to this whole world of knowledge that you didn't know. And you mentioned Jewish history, which for me is also as somebody who is Jewish, when you kind of discover that silence, you dive in and you just absorb. By the way, the, the title of the novel I was referring to is the weight of ink. Hmm. It's a phenomenal book. I'm writing it down. Thank uh, you. As is 
the recent uh, novel Hamnet, which is a, uh, an, an extraordinary book. And so I, I do try to make sure that my, uh, that I read widely. Yeah, and it's so interesting you say that too, because I mean, I took your class uh, 1950s from the present. I think that's how we were introduced in a way. And the course is super interdisciplinary, um, super holistic. I remember thinking it was super interesting that you could connect these cultural issues to these socioeconomic issues going on and you could really seeing it playing out in music and everything of the like. So uh, the, the reason, Sydney, I invented the course, yeah. I invented the course in the early 1990s. And what had happened at Cornell is that the American Studies program, which had been established in 19, the 1940s, essentially had atrophied. Uh, and uh, almost nobody was majoring in American mm -hmm. Studies. And in the 1980s, a wonderful English professor named Joel Porty and I decided to breathe new life uh, into American studies. And we enlisted a lot of our colleagues um, uh, 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 to join. And I um, uh, uh, invented the popular culture course as a way to attract uh, uh, more students in a large introductory lecture course. And uh, that was uh, a fairly successful, not because of me, but because I think the, uh, the material was intrinsically interesting. It was multidisciplinary, and it was sort of a advertisement for what American studies uh, would be. So it lasted uh, from that time uh, to the time when uh, when I called it a day. So, for listeners, can you uh, tell us what the course is about that we're referring to? The course is a year long course, uh, 1900 to 1950. And then originally, it was 1950 to the present. And I made a decision in, oh, probably about eight or 10 years ago, maybe a little bit more, that students knew more, much more about contemporary mm -hmm. popular culture than I did. And I didn't want to keep up. Uh, with contemporary American popular culture. So I changed the second semester from 1950 to the present to 1950 to 2000. And it worked splendidly because I sort of knew what I was talking about up until uh, uh, the year 2000. And I didn't have to keep up with the latest trends in, uh, uh, in music uh, or, or in movies. Uh, or in social media. Uh, the course was a lecture course. It met three times a week, uh, Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, in which I gave lectures, uh, and uh, then for a discussion period. And I will say, because I think a, a record should be made of this, one of the really bad things that happened in higher education, in my judgment, in my time, was that there was a conspiracy of students and faculty to get rid of Friday. Uh, 
And so uh, students wanted a four-day week. Faculty wanted a four-day week. So Monday, Wednesday, Friday classes disappeared with very, very few exceptions, language courses, maybe some science courses and so on. And permission was given to faculty members to instead of teaching Monday, Wednesday, Friday for 50 minutes, to teach Monday and Wednesday for 75 minutes. And so I was one of the last of the holdouts to teach Monday, Wednesday, Friday, because I thought it was pedagogically better. Uh, and uh, 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 this is um, uh, just to give you a sense of where student culture uh, is, it's a related point. A, a young man once came up to me not that long ago and said, Professor Altschuler, I'd love to take your popular culture class, but it meets so early in the morning. And I said to him, the course, all I always taught at exactly the same time, 11.15 to 12.05 in the morning. And I said to him, well, I'm a little bit perplexed because when that course ends, my lectures end, it's not the morning anymore. So uh, we all have adapted to student culture, no more Fridays, no more early mornings. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a little bit to be regretted, uh, but that's because I'm an old guy, an old traditionalist. It sounds like you have learned with your students and also your mentors and know what is the most academically viable setup. I mean, to do 75 minutes courses and two times a week is too much for the brain at some points. And you mentioned, you've talked a lot about student culture and campus climate and kind of your course almost not adapting, but yeah, adapting to the social life around you. So I'm curious, how has the climate changed at Cornell since you've been there? There's been a lot of um, memories, I'm sure. So what sticks out to you? I always say when people ask me, uh, you know, what I do, I said, uh, you know, I've taught at, uh, I've been at Cornell for 50 years and I'm thinking of staying. Mm. Uh, I love students. And the undergraduates at Cornell are just wonderful, uh, with very, very, very few exceptions. They're smart, uh, they're nice, they're intellectually interesting, they're ambitious, they're generous uh, with one another. And that's just phenomenal, uh, absolutely phenomenal. Uh, and I enjoyed every minute. My teaching by and large was voluntary because for most of my career, I was a dean and for a period of time, I was a vice president. So I didn't have to teach anything. I always taught uh, every single semester. Students over time uh, became, I would say, more obsessed with uh, the job market and positioning themselves for the job market than I would have liked. It was understandable. Yeah. Uh, uh, it is more challenging, uh, but it was regrettable for uh, 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 
teachers who are interested in the intrinsic value of what it is that they're teaching and not trying to align everything um, to a professional or vocational purpose. Uh, students also, in my judgment, uh, are somewhat more brittle and sensitive, mm -hmm. hypersensitive, uh, and more grade conscious. Mm -hmm. And um, during my time, there was a grotesque grade inflation that um, now has taken over higher education. And what it meant is there's just a very narrow grade range. Um, and it makes it more difficult to uh, give a student a grade. Uh, and uh, when a student wants to know why is this a B plus instead of a, an A minus? It's not easy since it's a, a subjective uh, a, a judgment. It's not easy uh, uh, to explain uh, why that is. And so students are sometimes disappointed because they're so eager uh, that their transcript uh, be uh, the kind of transcript that is uh, competitive and more than competitive with their peers. Yeah, kind of entering that neoliberal, like precariousness of life, like having to study to find a job. I don't yeah, no, having said that, I, th I, I just think that uh, I was so blessed to spend my career uh, uh, interacting with Cornell undergraduates. I wouldn't have given it up for anything. When you said that, I, I was like, I, it was just, you know, there's something about uh, professors at Cornell too that are exactly the way you explain students. Very nice intellectual um, nurturing of an education. So I appreciate you saying that. It makes me really happy. And I was thinking about asking you, you know, what made you want to become a teacher if it was voluntary for you? You didn't have to. I didn't have to. Uh, I love teaching and thought uh that I wanted to continue doing that. And I've always thought uh, that it was a mistake for uh, administrators to get away from what they came into the academy for in the first place. And that was uh, teaching and writing. So when I accepted administrative positions, I always made clear to provosts and presidents with whom I worked, that I would continue uh, uh, teaching and doing scholarship. And I was able to do that, fortunately. Uh, and so I had the best of both worlds. I, I had some small amount of influence in the university because I was at the table um, when significant decisions were made. But I controlled my own calendar, uh, and that meant that I could continue doing what I love to do. You were the dean of the School of Continuing Education, too, for the summer session. So you really continued on to even. I was a dean for 29 yeah. years, which means that uh, I was out of my mind, and Cornell probably um, couldn't find another sucker to take the position. 
and I was vice president um, for university relations for four years around the time of uh, uh, the Great Recession. And that was really to pitch in uh, and help. Uh, so I did that for four years and then uh, I remained as dean. Uh, but um, uh, 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 that was more time limited and for a specific purpose. Yeah, yeah. I remember the switching of roles. And, you know, I, I just want to acknowledge how accomplished of an academic you are and a dean and an advisor. Um, all the things you've been saying about your advisor um, as a PhD student, um, as a mentor, and cultivating like an academic community for you is really important. And it sounds like you've done the same on campus. I know you love doing advisee dinners and taking advantage of Ithaca and really having those close relationships with your students. So um, if you're comfortable, can you tell me more about where you found more community on campus with students and faculty? Well, um, students uh, uh, were uh, in great supply to anybody who was interested in listening. And uh, so uh, I had, over the course of my career, hundreds uh, of advisees uh, have tried to keep in touch uh, with them uh, over the years. With some, I've forged very, very close uh, relationships. And I would say that um, for me, the key to it is I'm not the smartest guy in the world. I'm not the wisest guy in the world, but I'm a pretty good listener. Uh, and students, I think, respond to somebody who will listen and who cares about them. Uh, and so that to me was quite fulfilling and I hope uh, uh, to students as well. With faculty, uh, Cornell for a long time had a faculty club. Uh, it's pretty well gone now, but uh, for me it was great because um, uh, you know, I met and had lunch with uh, uh, people through, from uh, across the whole university. And, uh, you know, I got to know amazing, uh, you know, people, uh, you know, Tom Eisner, one of the leading uh, uh, scholars in chemical defenses of insects, uh, was in our uh, a lunch group, um, uh, uh, people in uh, comparative literature and physics and history. One member of that group, Stuart Blumen, in the history department, and I have collaborated on three books, uh, the latest of which uh, has come out this week. It, 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 it's called The Rise and Fall of Protestant Brooklyn. Uh, and that uh, will probably be my last book. But I've put a premium on collaborations. I think collaborations are much more fun, much more rewarding and produce richer scholarship uh, because people bring very different perspectives. So, um, uh, you know, I uh, co-authored uh, History of Cornell with my best friend, 
uh, Isaac Kramnik, who unfortunately passed away in 2019. And uh, uh, that's a book that uh, uh, I'm very proud of uh, and that was a labor of love to do with your best friend. Uh, and we talked about it every day. With Stuart Blumen, um, uh, I published, as I said, three books. And what I would say is um, uh, The Rise and Fall of Protestant Brooklyn will be the 12th book that uh, I've authored or co-authored. Uh, some of them are pretty shitty. <laughs> uh, they didn't work out all that well. You never know uh, when you're doing uh, um, a book and some of them are not all that good. Uh, the book that I wrote uh, with uh, Stuart, the first book Stuart and I wrote, uh, Rude Republic, which is about American politics mm -hmm. in the 19th century, that book is very good. Uh, and uh, uh, because it challenged uh, uh, political historians, um, uh, it aroused uh, a response that was uh, 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 partly very admiring and partly furious uh, 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 among people who just uh, couldn't have disagreed more uh, uh, to what we were uh, uh, trying to say. And then we wrote a book about um, the GI Bill uh, which was a lot of fun. Uh, um, and now uh, uh, the book about Brooklyn. And so I'm not a person. Uh, some people, unfortunately, continue to write the same book uh, over and over again. And the advantage of that is that you become a master of a field. You become the civil war historian or the American Revolution historian. I was never interested in doing that. And the choices of topics for me uh, really involved um, what's come up that I find interesting to explore that I'd like to learn about. And so the things I've written about vary dramatically uh, from one to another. And uh, I can say with some confidence uh, that the work I've done is the best I can do. And I think nobody can say more than that. I love research for the same reason I love reading. And that is that when you do research, you learn something new every single day uh, uh, you do research. And there's something exciting about that. And when you collaborate, somebody is just as interested as you are. And Stuart and I would just, you know what I found uh, 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 today? And that just makes the enterprise um, a lot more enjoyable, a lot more enjoyable. And I, I will say uh, at the not so tender age of 72, that in certain ways, as you get older, you get better as an historian. And so, for example, my first book, which was a biography of uh, Andrew Dixon White, uh, uh, the first uh, president of Cornell, was written when I was in my 20s. 
No person should write a biography when he's in his 20s. You, your life experience is just not enough. And that book was written by a smart aleck who was trying to score some points. And uh, the book has some virtues, uh, but I would do it differently um, uh, if I was older. On the other hand, as you get older, it's much more difficult to do the research over many, many, many years. Uh, the history of Cornell, for example, uh, Isaac and I made very extensive use of the presidential papers at Cornell, three million documents. Uh, and when you get older, you just, you just can't do it. You just really, really can't do it. And the Brooklyn book, uh, which I'm very proud of, which I like a lot, that book, a main source was the Brooklyn Eagle, the iconic newspaper, mm -hmm. which was digitized some years ago so I could read it on my computer. That was a good news. The bad news is that I decided the only way to really learn about Brooklyn was to read every issue uh, of, uh, of that newspaper, the Brooklyn Eagle from 1942 when it started, 1842 when it started to 1930 when uh, the book ends. But schmuck that I am, I didn't realize that a newspaper that was between eight and 12 pages uh, each day uh, in 1842, on Sundays by 1890, one issue was 130 pages. And so I dutifully read every single issue of the Brooklyn Eagle for 86 years. Uh, it was enormously informative and helpful, but as you get older, it's more difficult to do that, much more difficult to do that. Thank you for sharing that all with me. Uh, some of the things that stood out to me were um, your love of listening and learning and collaboration and like learning um, knowledge through working with another um, while you're writing, which is very important as a historian, right? To get the roundness of just lived experience. Yes, it's very important. And a biography, when you're looking at somebody's life and your own lived experience, just goes up to the age of 26 or 27, yeah. um, your empathy is more limited than it yeah. should be. So it sounds like since your first book um, and then your time at Cornell as a PhD student and meeting the community you did um, is really shifted how you think of history. I think inevitably, if you're aware, if you read a lot, if you think a lot about it, then uh, your view of what the historian is and what the historian does uh, evolves over time. Really appreciate that, especially um, today um, when it's super important to just remember with people. I know Cornell has a huge archive um, in the library um, in the basement, the old uh, rare archive manuscripts. And when you talk about archival research, I can just imagine you engaging with the archives too at Cornell. Did you spend a lot of time there at all? Well, the presidential papers were in the archives. Yeah. Uh, when Stuart and I wrote uh, uh, A Rude Republic, 
we did a lot of archival research. We, we did some very quantitative research. We did community studies of uh, um, uh, a couple of dozen communities around the United States to get a sense of political engagement. But we also looked at individual archives because we were interested in the space that politics occupied in people's lives. So there was a lot of archival research looking, looking for that. We also, for that book, we read the 100 best sellers and better sellers uh, in the 19th century, again, to chart uh, the space that politics occupied and uh, how politics was treated. So that, that was kind of interesting. Yeah, I mean, especially when you're working, again, with somebody else, it sounds like you formed a really a fun and fun friendship and very stimulating friendship academically um. when, when you when you uh, when you collaborate on, on on a book I learned that you have to do it with somebody uh, who you like who you respect a lot mm -hmm. but also where there's no ego involved there should be no measuring I did more research than you did I'm writing more than you did and unfortunately that uh, sometimes comes up uh, in, in collaborations. Sure. Um, I feel like uh, what you've been talking about uh, yourself as a teacher, a lifelong learner, and like learning how to collaborate that um, you've made relationships with your Cornell community at the same time, right? That you mm -hmm. learn from conflict, right? You're, you're, you write a lot about conflict. <laughs> so um, I'm curious, what does Cornell mean to you? and the scope of everything in your work, because you've been talking a lot about students, your relationships, and how all of your work is really informed by your personal experiences as well. Well, uh, you know, in, in, I taught for a few years at Ithaca College uh, after I finished my PhD, but I've, I've remained in Ithaca since 1971. And in essence, Cornell is really the only institution I know. Uh, I have, uh, you know, friends and colleagues at other places, and of course I've lectured at other places, but uh, Cornell is the place I know, and I've seen it as a faculty member, but also as uh, an administrator. And so what happens, Sydney, which is not great, is that... Uh, Often, maybe this is a human characteristic, or maybe this is a Glenn Altshuler characteristic. Over time, you tend to see flaws. You mm. tend to see defects as much as you see virtues and maybe more. We often take for granted um, uh, the wonderful uh, things that are there and are more conscious of the defects. So I think that the wonderful thing about Cornell is that it has had uh, a pretty good uh, commitment to undergraduate education, which is very important to me. And the great Cornell professors, great scholars, teach uh, undergraduate courses and introductory uh, uh, lecture courses. And that's 
a virtue. It's not true, um, you know, every place else. Cornell is also good, at least it was for me, in encouraging multidisciplinary connections. And so I like that a lot. Uh, a number of my friends are from other departments. Um, I, just to give you a little feel for this, for decades, I've been the token humanist in a monthly poker game with <laughs> members of the chemistry department. Uh, I'm also, have also been in a poker game that involved English department and government department people. And you get to know people uh, in those kinds of settings, in addition to the faculty club, which I talked about earlier. But it facilitates just learning about things and thinking differently about things. And now I write a weekly political op-ed for The Hill. I've written over 200, I think, um, op-eds. And that has come in no small measure because of my uh, very close contacts and friendships with people in the government mm -hmm. department from whom I've learned a lot, uh, in some instances collaborated uh, with on op-eds and on other uh, short pieces. And that I think is a virtue of uh, Cornell as well. Like all institutions of higher education, unfortunately, uh, Cornell is very large and uh, 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 bureaucratized. And some of the things that um, uh, uh, you know, I valued and value tremendously are maybe a little bit less in evidence uh, uh, these days, uh, if I may say so. I will also say that um, you know, people talk about the golden age of higher education and the golden age of higher education was for a very short period of time, if you know anything about higher education. Mm -hmm. Higher education is uh, under assault now, yeah. doesn't have the esteem among Americans it had, is being trashed by uh, a political uh, uh, people for ideological reasons. That uh, does not bode well for the future of higher education. Students are less inclined um, to embrace the liberal arts and humanities, which I think is, uh, you know, unfortunate. Uh, and um, so the bureaucratization, the corporatization, so to speak, I, I used to hate it when people used that word, but it's not all that inappropriate uh, for higher education these days. And uh, that's something I, I would say to be regretted. And just generally, even in higher education, there's a kind of loss of historical memory. And so uh, that is a loss to the institutional culture, I would say. And Cornell is not immune from that. Thank you for sharing that with me. Um, you're a humanist and a, and a realist, and I always appreciate learning with you, especially um, when you brought up the historical memory part, there, because Cornell is full of historical memories that um, sometimes you have to take a class, right, to learn about those things. I learned a lot about Cornell history from you and um, just this idea of, yeah, learning with people over time and how important that is, um, especially as academia faces more pushback 
um, right. politically, it's so important to be an open listener and a learner. Um, so I've loved hearing this from you and learning with you. So Sydney, Sydney uh, yeah. I would also say one other quick thing, if I might, and that is that um, there's been a shift over my career to a greater and greater concern with uh, writing for colleagues in the discipline rather than reaching out to a wider public. Uh, and uh, that the narrowing, the emphasis on disciplinary specialization, which is, um, has produced some significant results also has a very substantial downside yes. because um, uh, especially humanists, social scientists, in my judgment, should be public intellectuals and they should be helping inform uh, the larger conversation. And I think, um, I detect that younger faculty right now are starting to return to that notion of trying to uh, be public intellectuals reaching a larger audience. And I really hope that continues. It's in my small way, I've tried to do that um, by doing as much writing as I do yeah. uh, for non-academic uh, 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 platforms and venues. Yeah, and um, public knowledge is such a, a powerful resource and a powerful tool for action. And you've written a lot. You, you are a prolific writer, a prolific scholar, and your books range from multiple topics, like you said, the GI Bill to Cornell history. And it, it's just incredible. <laughs> it's, it's incredible how much you've done. Um, and you speaking now to really just giving the public knowledge and also wanting to learn, like we've talked about. Um, it's admirable. So um, I think one last question, I maybe not my last question, but I do want to know since school is starting, um, the undergrads I think are starting in a bit, uh, what advice would you have to either incoming freshmen or you know somebody who might be graduating who doesn't know what they wanna do next, like you've mentioned? Well, the advice I would give is um, uh, uh, advice that um, I hope they've heard already. Yeah. And that is the most important thing you can do in the first year, year and a half is to find out two things. What am I interested, most interested in and what am I best at? And that exploration should lead to the choice of a major. And the luxury that students have in a very fine institution like Cornell is that uh, if you do that, if you major in what you're most interested in and most and best at, you'll do just fine. And if you do it the other way around, uh, uh, by saying I want to be a, a, a you know a doctor or an entrepreneur or uh, a, a lawyer, and I'm going to do everything instrumental to that aim, uh, then you're just going to be less engaged. You'll learn less, and it's not going to help you, uh, you know, all that much. Cornell students 
students at institutions like Cornell do extremely well. And that should be a luxury. It should mean that you should follow what you're interested in. So, uh, and then the second piece of advice is get to know a faculty member or faculty members. Go to the office hours. Uh, and uh, the way I always say it is that uh, faculty members are totally subject to flattery. Uh, if you begin by saying, you know, there was something you said in lecture that I was fascinated uh, 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 by, you'll be off to the races. Uh, there doesn't have to be a specific reason for you to come. And students who forge those kinds of relationships uh, uh, do extremely well. And they have a great experience. Especially at Cornell where you, know, you have people sometimes just in a professor's office just talking their ear off about how exciting what they're reading is or something right. they've learned. Yeah, it's super fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, I wouldn't be talking with you here right now if it weren't for meeting you, to be honest, and learning about American studies and, you know, all things that the humanities can serve a purpose for. And yeah, being a lifetime learner is something I've definitely learned with you and from you. Um, so with that being said, um, just what's something about Cornell that you'll hold with you in your memory forever? Um, just something that's important to you about Cornell? Well, Cornell was, was once characterized, it's perfect characterization, that Cornell is centrally isolated. And that phrase captures it and captures a lot what's good about it. Because students are thrown on one another's resources at Cornell and faculty are thrown on one another's resources at Cornell. There's not a city that you can melt into. And so friendships, student to student friendships, are in my judgment stronger uh, at Cornell. Um, uh, lifetime relationships, uh, be they uh, 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 marriage or uh, they occur. Uh, I don't have empirical evidence for this, but uh, uh, intuitively, I think that's the case. And the other thing that's true that's great for faculty is that people like me would be much more likely to spend the whole day on campus, because we use the library, or we'd see people, than somebody in an urban campus who lived in the suburbs, uh, who would teach a course and then go home or go elsewhere. And so if I would be invited to dinner or to give a talk in an evening, I would be more likely to say yes, not because I'm so nice or uh, nicer than somebody else, because I could give a talk and by nine o'clock be in my house, in my pajamas with the little feet in them, uh, uh, you know, ready to go to bed. Uh, and so it's in that respect, 
an advantage for the development of relationships, social as well as intellectual and professional. And that's a unique advantage of Cornell that is maybe less appreciated than it otherwise uh, uh, might be. And uh, I know I was the beneficiary of that. And even Sydney, something like a poker game with the chemistry department, you could go to that game, which rotated, the host was, uh, uh, you know, one of the players and then the next player would host and so on. You could get to everybody's house in five or 10 minutes. And so you'd be more likely to do it. Uh, and that meant for uh, a deeper relationships as well. The relationships, like you've said, both social, academic, professional, um, you've never left Ithaca and I can see why, <laughs> how influential it's been on just your selfhood and your path. It's, it's, it's beautiful to hear the relationships you've formed. Great. Yeah, um, I just want to, one, say thank you so much <laughs> for sharing everything you did. I learned so much with you. I love hearing about the poker game. Um, the, the, that's amazing. Um, is there anything else you'd like to add for anybody listening? Or? No, I think what's, what's important is to understand the, the role of higher education in all of our lives. And higher education, as we were saying to one another, is now very much under attack. And it's important for all Americans to understand what's going on, to understand what's good about colleges and universities, to understand legitimate concerns about them. We haven't talked about the issue of access for all people, the costs of higher education, the availability uh, of financial aid, all very important issues, the role of research uh, in sciences and engineering, as well as uh, the humanities. All of these are things which citizens need to be aware of uh, because the future of higher education as it relates to their children and the next generation hinges uh, on uh, a public knowledge of higher education. So that, that, would, that would be a good thing. Yeah, and, and you know, it goes back to your writings on the GI Bill and how that was the influx of higher education and just how that bill really changed. That played everything. an extraordinary role in the democratization mm -hmm. of higher education and the democratization of higher education is not complete. Mm -hmm. it, the democratization needs to be deeper and broader. Mm -hmm. And to the extent that all of us uh, want that to happen, we have to be more actively involved in making it happen. So Sydney, it's great to see you. And you too. Good, good luck with the project. Thank and, you. Uh, uh, thanks for giving me the opportunity to uh, uh, to talk with you today. Yeah, and thank you for speaking with me. And hopefully people will collaborate and learn with one another. Yeah. Great. Bye.
Thanks for tuning in to another episode of Fresh from the Hill. Music for Fresh from the Hill was written and produced by Kia Albertson Markers, class of 2013. To learn more about the podcast and young alumni programs, visit our website, alumni.cornell.edu slash young alumni, and follow our Facebook page at Cornell Young Alumni Programs.